It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome in to another edition of the Skinny Podcast, the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor, along with Rick Broering. Each week we look at sports topics of local interest, some national topics, and of course my favorite portion of the show that Rick started and you chime in on, which is Ask ask Me Anything. Although Rick gets to answer some of those questions too. So they, you, you asked me... And Rick gets to have his say in it as well. Uh, we continue to do this podcast via social distancing measures. We're doing our part. I am not wearing a mask currently, even though I believe that the governor of our state, Andy Bashir, is going to start making us wear one. But I guess in the comfort of our own house, Rick, we don't have to wear one after all. Yeah, I don't know how that would improve or maybe, uh, you know, make worse the, the audio quality of our podcast. Well, I've, I've, if- I've got one. I've got one right here by my nightstand. Let me see. How does that sound like, like that? Is that good? No, actually, that's better for you. I actually, okay. uh, yeah, okay. I prefer that. Okay, there we go. Now I'll take it off, though. Um, yeah, and you, uh, I'm taking this week off, but I'm still doing the podcast. And usually, this is the time of year I take a week right before training camp starts because, because you're I, professional. That's right, and I'm trying to get myself energized for seven day weeks from now into to the end of December. But I don't know if I'm going to get those seven day weeks or not. Maybe I only have to work five days a week, which that'll be okay too, I guess. Yeah, what a reprieve that would be during uh, football season. Yeah. But we appreciate you showing up to do the podcast like the professional that you are. I know all the listeners will be happy. Oh, I'm sure they will be. I, I'm, I'm sure they're pining for that. Hey, big week right. last week, by the way. We saw a spike in listeners all of a sudden. So shout out Maybe. to quarantine listening. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. The, the spike in, you see the spike in coronavirus, the spike in listenership. If they flatten the curve, unfortunately, maybe that means they'll flatten the curve for listening to the show. Yeah, we need to spike the curve on listenership, flatten yes, the curve yes. on coronavirus. Yeah, all right. Well, maybe we, can, maybe we can try our best this week to continue spiking that curve. All right, let's do some spiking. The 2020 MLB regular season schedule was released earlier in the week, and the Reds will open up the season at Great American Ballpark against the Detroit Tigers on Friday, July 24th at 6.10 p.m. With the shortened season, teams will play 40 games against opponents in their own division and 20 interleague games against teams in the corresponding geographical division. MLB.com writer Mike Petriello called the Reds' overall schedule the best in baseball, with one-third of their games coming against the Tigers, Pirates, and Royals, who went a combined 175 and 310 last year. Skinny, what were your observations after seeing the Reds' 2020 schedule? Yeah, that was one of them. I mean, they got 12 home games with the groups, the teams you said, and eight away games. So 20 games out of the 60 against the, the Pirates, Tigers, and Royals, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, uh, I, you know, it's obviously an unbalanced schedule. You're not playing the, the Cubs five at home, five away. The Cardinals five at home. It's, they got the Cubs seven at home, three away. Uh, Pittsburgh seven at home, three away. Um, and then Milwaukee and St. Louis three at home each and seven away. So it's unbalanced, but it's unbalanced for everybody. A, a couple of things. I think one – you know, the last year's whole message was the slow start killed anything, right? Well, this year, A, you can't get off to a slow start in a 60-game season and hope to rebound, and this team shouldn't. I mean, if you look at the, at the first portion of their schedule, Rick, through August 16th, they have three at home with Detroit, four at home with the Cubs, three on the road against Detroit, then Cleveland two at home, two on the road, Brewers three on the road, then Kansas City two at home, Pittsburgh forward home. So that's 7, 10, 12, 14, 17, 21, 23 games. I mean, honestly, out of those 23, you get off to a 16 and 7 start, which is a possibility. Let's go 15 and 8. I think you put yourself in a great spot, but you have to do it and you have to take advantage of those bad teams early. Yeah, I mean, one thing that definitely stands out is if you are under 500 after that stretch, you're going to be in some trouble. 
Yeah, because the next stretch from August 18th through September 2nd is really, really hard. Two at Kansas City, four at St. Louis, four at Milwaukee, Cubs at home for three, St. Louis at home for three. I mean, that's a really rough stretch right there. So, yeah, you, you have to get off to a good start. It's not even an if, ands, or buts. You've yeah. got to. One of the other things, you know, in addition to the Reds kind of having a weaker schedule based on last year's results, uh, they also, one of the stats, uh, one of my guys on uh, Twitter sent this to me, they'll be one of the least traveled teams. Um, as, far as, mile, as far as mileage goes. Yeah, at, at just for over 4,600 miles traveled, that puts them right among the bottom. You know, the Cardinals are, the Cardinals and Tigers are right off 4,600, the Cubs around 4,000 miles. The Brewers at 3,900 are the only teams under them. But you get up to like the, the top teams, like the Rangers and Astros, they're travel, traveling 14,000 miles over right. the next 60 days. So um, normally not something I, I take into consideration too much, but in such a, a crammed in schedule like this, it might play a role, especially when the discrepancy is that large between the teams that are traveling the least and the teams that are traveling the most. The guy sent it to me saying, hey, this might help you with your uh, win totals. And I have to admit, seeing that the Reds have an easier schedule and they're not going to travel as much as everybody else in a, a shortened season, I feel pretty good about that 31 and a half games right now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the, the really the hardest stretch of, of road games where they play 10 in a row on the road at Kansas City, the two, then at St. Louis, four, at Milwaukee, four. I mean, those are not awful trips. The trip from here to Kansas City is a two-hour flight. It's a puddle jump from Kansas City to St. Louis, and it's not all that long from St. Louis to Milwaukee, and that's probably the hardest trip they've got. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like the, those years where you maybe play uh, – you know, three at Houston and then go to the West Coast for three at San Diego, three at L.A., three at San Francisco. I mean, it, it is a fairly doable thing. And, I, I again, I, I think I agree with the, the most people that have kind of analyzed it. I, I, th- I think they got a big break in the schedule for sure. And, again, playing 20 games against arguably, you know, three of the five worst teams in baseball doesn't hurt. No, that's got to make you feel pretty good if you're a Reds fan. It just kind of leads back to what we've talked about for the Reds in terms of, you know, the um, – the randomness of the way this is all playing out could benefit the Reds as much as anyone, and and so far that seems to be the case. Reds manager David Bell also announced that Sonny Gray will take the mound for the Reds on opening day against the Tigers. Skinny, what do you think of the decision to start Sonny Gray on opening day? I mean, if you want to base it off of last year, he earned it. Um, you know, he, he just about every statistical category: ERA, uh, WHIP. Um, uh, just you name it, almost every statistical category, he was the best pitcher on the Red Staff last year. I think Luis Castillo is the best pitcher, in my opinion, and I think he has the most upside of, of any of the pitchers. But based on that from last year, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm fine with that, and I would hope that, uh, that, that everybody else would be fine with it as well. It's weird because normally the uh, opening day starter it takes on such importance, you know, in, yeah. Yeah, in spring training. But really, that's probably more to do with there's just not a lot to talk about in spring training, and it's something to make a big deal over. In this shortened season, it feels to me that the opening day starter doesn't matter nearly as much, or at least people aren't making nearly as big of a, a deal about it. Do you feel like that's true? Yeah, um, and again, I think I think most people maybe disagree. I think most people believe Luis Castillo is the best pitcher on that staff. I yeah. happen to believe that. Um, but if you want to do it based on who earned it, um, I think Sonny Gray probably earned that. Um, you know, Castillo's been an opening day starter, but I think Sonny Gray has, has earned that. I think the good part is, you know, those first seven games, you don't have any off days. You know, you play seven straight. Well, actually, you play nine – or excuse me – they play 12 straight before they have a day off. But those first seven games at home, you get to throw Sonny Gray out there twice and Luis Castillo out there twice. I, I like that. Are, 
are you under the impression that these guys will be treated with kids gloves and, and that they'll really be limited in terms of their innings early on? Or do you think they're going to cut them loose because every game matters so much and, and try to see how far they can get into the game and get that yeah. win? Yeah, I, I, would, I did a radio interview this past week, and, and I think with Tony Pike, our friend, and, and he asked me that same question. And um, to me, I mean, David Bell is a quick guy to go to the bullpen anyway. So I, I think that it'll be kind of all systems go, but that doesn't mean you're going to have Sonny Gray throw 125 pitches because it's just not what they do as a, as a staff. So right. I, I think, you know, you're also in – as opposed to being in, in April when it can be really cold at night and you're pitching a night game, do you want to run a guy out there for 110 pitches, you know, his first or second start as opposed to here we are in the summer months where it's a little bit warmer. Um, you know, maybe that helps extend a guy. But I just think the way baseball's managed today and, and the way bullpens are used that I still think that – you, you know, kid gloves is probably the right term, but I, I think you can see pitchers – in the sixth inning if they show a little rocky road or hit a certain pitch count 85 90 maybe first time out of of getting pulled so yeah I, I just think it's just the way the game's managed that pitchers aren't asked to go that long anymore as starters I expect that the managers will treat this situation a little bit differently because you have so many games in such a short period of time that I, I that you know there's not a lot of off days to kind of reset things or or break it up I kind of imagine they're going to use their bullpens early and often, at least for the first couple of starts here. I, I could be wrong about that, but that's my thinking is that they're going to, to you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're only seeing starters go four or five innings those first couple of games. Yeah, and, and I think the Reds have a, have a guys in the bullpen capable of throwing to more than three batters. Of course, you know, this is the three-year batter, batter minimum uh, circumstance, but I mean – Who's to say Rizal Iglesias can't pitch two innings? Amir Garrett can pitch two innings. Michael Lorenzen can pitch two plus innings. So I, I think that's the other advantage the Reds have is you don't have a bunch of guys who you go, man, that's really just a one-out pitcher. Now he's got to get three outs because he's got to face three guys. Um, that's not just a lefty specialist. I mean, Amir Garrett can get lefties and righties and strike them out with, with equal ability. So can Iglesias. Uh, Michael Lorenzen can get righties and lefties out. So I, I think they have a nice little advantage there where they can use some of these guys for multiple innings at a time. Skinny, we've talked about the shorter schedule, the fact that it's unbalanced, uh, the, the weird interleague aspect to it. I mean, there's a lot of different things about this season. Is it more interesting to you because it's shorter and anything can happen? Or is it less interesting to you because it's gimmicky with the new rules and odd scheduling format? It, it's more interesting, and, and I, I can't believe I'm actually saying that, but it, but it is. And maybe it's because when, when baseball starts in you know late late. March, early, early April, um, we still are kind of winding down the NCAA basketball tournament. And then you really don't have a whole lot. You got the draft that gets you through April. Then May comes along and you kind of start getting into, into baseball for a couple of months. And then July comes along. And if the local team isn't doing well, you quickly turn your attention to, to football. I think with this being such a sprint um, and obviously a lot of other things up in the air sports wise, I think people are really going to be interested in this, especially in Cincinnati and especially in Cincinnati if this team gets off to a good start and has a chance to make the playoffs. I don't think anybody at that point is going to care that this was only a 60-game season and a sprint to the finish. If this team does well or as well as we're now hoping it does, I think people are going to be really interested in this season. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing for me. Again, I always go back to when you're talking baseball, it's best enjoyed by watching your team. You know, I, I just don't care all that much about baseball overall. I do really care about what happens with the Reds. And this format, all the weirdness that goes on with this season and the fact that there, there is some randomness to these results that we're about to witness, 
makes me feel good about the Reds' chances, or at least better about the Reds' chances, or more interested in what's going to happen with the Reds. So for me, I do think that the the shorter season, the weird schedule, I mean, particularly the weird schedule, I think that's the biggest one right now for me, that the Reds have an unfair advantage right now with the way the schedule played out. So um, the, the fact that they'll have a, a little bit of a, a better chance here to get into the postseason, and and then after that, it's it's all bets are off. But I, I do like what what's about to take place. And I don't know if it'll work out or not for the Reds, but I think it's going to be at least exciting for the fans of Cincinnati to watch. And a lot of times baseball season is just too long. It just yeah. is. I mean, no, it especially is. with a, a team that's lost a lot over the last two decades and, and most of my lifetime. So the idea of, uh, Hey, it's, it's going to be two to three months of really intense baseball viewing and, and uh, rooting interest. And then after that, it'll be over. That definitely ex- excites me, and I'm anxious to see how it all plays out. Yeah, like I said, I mean, it just feels like for me, you know, I don't even pay a whole lot of attention to April. Yeah, opening day, we all pay attention to opening day just because of the party and the, right. and the newness of a new season all that. But then, yeah, I, I kind of tune in a little bit in May and June. But once June's gone by and, and if the team's not doing well, yeah, well, I listen to them out back drinking a beer at, at night, and yeah, maybe occasionally, but I'm sure not paying as much attention as I normally would. With, with this, like I said, I mean – you only have a few weeks to catch people's attention here, too, if football's played. Um, but if they can do that, I, I, think, I think people are going to be excited about it. I, I know I will be. Yeah, it also kind of feels like you'll know right away whether right, they're in or right, they're out, right? right I mean, no, after right. three weeks, if they're struggling, see ya. I mean, yeah, no, <laughs> there's right, no exactly. time to come back now. Exactly right. So, yeah, I, I think it's going to be, be kind of cool to watch, and especially because I think you're right. As much as I like the big 162 and romanticize about it over, over my lifetime of watching that and how it evolves – um, I'm kind of with you anymore. The, the season's just too darn long to keep my interest. Yep. All right, well, let's switch gears over to football. Super Bowl MVP Patrick Mahomes signed a 10-year contract extension worth up to $503 million with the Chiefs. $63 million of that is guaranteed at signing, and $141 million is guaranteed by March of 2022. The deal includes $477 million in guarantee mechanisms, which essentially means the team guarantees his salary a year in advance, and if they don't pick up each guarantee, then they'll have to cut him to avoid picking up the future guarantee. Uh, do you think the Chiefs made the right move by signing Pat Mahomes to a 10-year contract, Skinny? Yeah, and, and not to get too deep dive-ish into this, um, you, you see the figures and they're eye-popping, and, and I think everybody always assumes he's going to make all $503 million, and he might. Um, but it's also possible he doesn't. I, I think the first real clause that kicks in for him, I think, is 2026. When he's due um, in March of that year, um, $49 million if he's still on the roster. And so at that point, if let's say, because I think people are going to think, well, if he gets hurt, he's a quarterback. If he gets hurt, man, they're going to be on the hook. Yeah, for a, for a little bit, for a few years. And yeah, it'll probably cost him if Pat Mahomes suffers a career-ending injury in game two of this season they're out all that guaranteed money that you just talked about. But for them, I think they realize they got a franchise quarterback, arguably maybe the guy who's trending to possibly be the greatest of all time. And they're going to make sure they keep him happy and keep him locked up and then be able to build around him. They've got about, I think three or four years um, starting this year, moving forward. I don't think it affects their cap a ton, like I said, the 2026, when that $49 million roster bonus kicks in, that's when they start to have to make some decisions. But if he's playing well, they're playing well, and everything's going the right way, they're going to keep him on the roster, pay that money, and, and go, probably that's probably – I didn't look at all the way out. I'm going to guess he's got roster bonuses each year from yeah, there. it's all the way out, which is unique. 
Yeah, and, and it's kind of like we talked about with the DJ Reader contract. When we looked at it initially, I thought, man, they threw a lot of money at that cat. And they did, the Bengals, meaning the Bengals. But if you also look at it, there's a, after a couple of years, they can opt out of that basically and, and really not hurt themselves or have to pay all of that money to DJ Reader. Now, if he plays well and they decide he's worth keeping around, then, yeah, it's going to end up being a, a lot of money. So that's where when, when, when you see big NFL contracts, there's a lot to them. I mean, I, I read a piece, and it was an interesting one. I think Bill Barwell wrote it. He said that, believe it or not, you know, you might get five or six years into this deal, and they may renegotiate with Patrick Mahomes, and, and it actually may be beneficial for both again because then you can re-guarantee some money up front. You can amortize it out over however many periods of years you want to do it. That's why you, the, the guaranteed money you talked about is basically averaged out over the 10 years of the contract and applied to the salary cap that way. So when you hear that 63 mil over 10 years, they can treat it as 6 mil a year, which is a lot, but it's not you know, over the top a lot. It's those roster bonuses that really can kick in and, and, and put you up against the cap. Well, and you, you know, the, the date you bring up, you know, that 2026-ish um, timetable or 2025, I mean, I think that's around when the new TV money is going right. to be kicking in for the NFL. So you, you're talking about 40 plus 50 million, whatever. But at that time, if there's new money and the, the salary caps are going up again, that might not even be an outrageous contract at that no, time that's right. for the top quarterback in the NFL or, you know, a top 10 quarterback, what, what have you. So That's what we just talked about. They may renegotiate it at that Yeah, point. I mean, they may have to pay him more by that point. It may not be that it's too, too big of a contract. It may be too small by that point. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot that goes into this. This is an interesting contract, though, because a lot of times when you see the big quarterback contracts especially – um, like for instance, the Colin Kaepernick deal uh, years ago was the like one of the first hundred million deals, right, for a quarterback. But almost all of it was incentivated, um, and yeah, right. and, and none of it was guaranteed. This one is interesting because he does get a lot of guaranteed. One hundred forty-one is basically guaranteed unless something crazy happens within the next year or so. Um, and then after that, you, you mentioned the injury potential. Well, a lot of this gets guaranteed if he does have injuries. So a, a, big, a big part of the guarantees are related to injuries. And then you also have a situation where because the, the guarantee mechanisms, uh, which are this new buzzword, I guess, in contracts, but something that's been around for a while from what I understand, they basically have to say, like, if they want him for 2024, they'll also have to guarantee a salary for 2025. Yeah, and, and so that again, makes it I think- to cut a guy a year ahead of time, even if he's going to be injured or if his play drops off in a hurry – but it does give you an out. Year. Yeah, it does give you an out if you're a team, though. I mean, you, there is an out there eventually, right? Yeah. And, and, and so that, that, in a way, again, you look at it, you're like, man, what's Kansas City doing? It's a win-win for both. I mean, it's, I, it's, exactly. a, it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's an awful lot of money. There's no question about it. But, um, you know. But by the it, time it he, becomes a, a ton of money, it may not even be a crazy deal for quarterbacks by that point. You know, I mean, up front right now, like you said, it's not really changing. The, the, their salary cap. I mean, they're they're in good shape, yeah, and he's right he's taking up about as much money percentage wise as most of the top contracts in football right now. Yeah, the only fear that I would have if I'm Kansas City would be if the season is not played this year, and or if it's played with minimal fans, and what that does to the salary cap next year, and maybe even the year after that, depending right. on how things go. That that would have been my only reason for maybe not doing a deal like this but obviously they've crunched the numbers and figured that they can do it and um look it's a pretty well-run organization right i'm, I'm going to trust their decision making here yeah this feels like one of the few ex- the long-term contracts you know something that's 10 years which is just outrageous there's been what like six of those in nfl history um yeah it just doesn't happen right it feels like one of the few where both sides 
did it right and, and got a pretty yes. good deal out of it. They're both uh, pretty well protected if things go wrong on either side. And yet, I, I feel like Patrick Mahomes should be happy with his contract. He's being well compensated. Uh, it, his team is putting their money where their mouth is, all of that stuff. So it is one of those rare situations where it feels like it's a win-win. Yeah, no doubt. I, I, again, I, like I said, I, they're a good, well-run organization, and um, I'm going to trust their decision-making here. Speaking of big contracts, we are just one week away from the deadline for the Bengals having to sign A.J. Green to a long-term deal. The two parties will have to come to terms by July 15th, which is next Wednesday. Skinny, is it a done deal that A.J. Green will be franchise tagged, and is that the right move for the Bengals if so? Yeah, I, I just can't see them get, coming to a long-term deal not having seen him on the field. I, I, I honestly, th- this offseason, and this is kind of a storyline that got pushed to the side with both he and Joe Mixon because all the uh, offseason stuff was done via Zoom that um, we don't know if they even showed up on Zoom. And we don't know if the team knows where either one of them really is in, in their – and, again, I'm, I'm taking this as a, 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 a scenario that's, that's plausible. Um, I think for them, they would have had to have seen A.J. Green at least come to mandatory minicamp and see what he looked like. Um, And also, the thing I just mentioned, I mean, if we're not going to have fans this year or minimal fans, and, you know, I think we saw yesterday the Baltimore Ravens um, said they're going to cap capacity at 14,000. If you do it based on that, Paul Brown Stadium capacity is going to probably be 12,000. You're taking a pretty good hit there financially, and then we don't know what the salary cap is going to be next year. I just don't think you can afford to give him a long-term deal. I think you sign with this franchise tag. He signs it. He's he's already talked about that he, you know, he doesn't like it, but he'll sign it. He said, "I ain't walking away from 18 mil," so he's going to sign it. Um, and I I just think it's the right thing to do. I just I I just can't put money into a 32-year-old wide receiver who's played one game in the last year and a half, and I don't know fully how he's how he's doing physically. If that alienates you from signing him long term down you know after this year so be it and that's on him too I, I just think I got to see more I got I got to see him on the field before I pay him yeah I think that's- and 18 mil by the way 18 mil is not chump change by the way they're not, they're not exactly I mean when you get the franchise tag it's the average of, of, of some high-priced guys so you're you're still making a pretty good piece of change I'm with you I don't think there's any way the Bengals could do a long-term deal here without having seen what's going to happen with A.J. Green. Also, just the whole Burrow, A.J. Green, does is that working? I mean, will they, you know, will A.J. Green kind of be that veteran that takes Joe under his wing and they work well together and Joe feels like, hey, I need that guy in my locker room? Or is it going to be a situation that doesn't quite gel in that fashion? And uh, maybe A.J. Green becomes kind of disgruntled with the organization overall in the next season. And he's a guy a year from now that we're looking at as expendable, which, I mean – Granted, that seems hard to believe, but no, it does. It does, what, it does, but it doesn't, though, Rick. Right after what we just saw play out, and, and what we see play out across the the, the NFL every season, um, I don't think that that's unreasonable. So I would definitely be very cautious about this if I were the Bengals. And I think the the franchise tag is really the only move here. So it's pretty much a foregone conclusion that that's what we'll see next Wednesday, and then things get interesting from there. You know it kind of feels like a clean slate at that point for the Bengals and AJ green and, and whatever happens from that point on will determine their future together. And I, you know, again, I don't want to be a doomsdayer here um, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I don't want to give a guy a bunch of guaranteed money if I don't even know if a season's going to be played. And then he's a year further down the road without playing. 
Well, that's another good point. I mean, could you imagine if this season gets canceled and you just forked over a a long-term deal, you lose a year of that deal plus guaranteed money up front. Uh, It could be a disaster. So yeah, I mean, the situation has really left the Bengals with only one option in terms of how to negotiate this at this point. I I did want to ask you about uh, a half a day ago now at this point, so late last night, Joe Mixon tweeted out the number four, the letters PF, a money bag, and a shooting star emoji. Um, any thoughts on what that might mean from the Bengals' star running back? Is, is, he, is he the number four ranked pro football focus? Is that the PF? <laughs> I don't know. Someone was thinking maybe he was changing to power forward. Maybe. The four, the four spot. Yeah. Um, I, I, obviously, we've talked about him and where they stand. I mean, he's got one more year on his contract. His rookie contract uh, is, is coming up, and he'll be a free agent, and usually the time for him to have the leverage is now. But I think, unfortunately for him, the leverage sucks because of this way this offseason has taken place. I, I was one back in – where was it, Rick? Back in you know February or March talking about signing this guy to, a, to an extension because even though I'm not a big one on paying running backs um, – and I think it's usually a waste of money. I think in the case of Joe Mixon, he is the focal point of your offense for right now. He's still young, still has plenty of tread left on the tires. He's not been overused. In fact, you could argue he's probably been underused at times. Um, but in this environment, I just don't know where you stand in giving extensions. And, and yeah. I think it's a tough spot for everybody. If the Bengals did get something done with Joe Mixon under these circumstances, I would have to imagine it would be a very team-friendly contract and I don't think that's what Joe Mixon is looking for right now. No, so. and I don't. And again, and, and, and it, be. It, yeah, it, it, that's the thing. I um, uh, there was a good piece on Get Up on ESPN, and I think the show is kind of goofy, but there's a couple segments I occasionally like, and they they were talking about the running back market, and you know basically how running backs are kind of those guys that are used up and kind of discarded, and it's it's a shame. It, I feel for them because of all the position groups, that really does happen. You get them on their rookie deal. You run them through their rookie deal. You might sign them to a, one extension. You're certainly not going to sign them to another extension. And a lot of teams aren't going to sign them to big money. And then you just go draft another guy and let him play his rookie deal through. And probably, you know, he's discarded at that point because, hey, the, the, the lifespan of a running back in the league, the career span, isn't very long anyway. So usually that's just thrown away money if you're throwing money at a running back. And um, Joe, I think, is a little bit different for the reasons I said, his age, the lack of tread on the tires, uh, the way he's been utilized, um, the fact that he's been nothing but a, I think, a team-first guy since he's been here. I, I think he probably, they should extend him. But in this climate, in this marketplace, I just think it's really, really tough. If the Bengals don't get better, like if they continue to just kind of struggle in Joe Mixon's career, I've got a, it's a real Corey Dillon feel to his career. Yeah, no, right. You're right. He kind of has that, I'll take the ball whenever you give it to me. I'll do whatever I can, but you're doing nothing to help me out here kind of uh, career boiling. And um, it just it, it's very reminiscent of the Corey Dillon years. Yeah, no, and, and if you uh, – ESPN did a, a piece where they, they asked um, 50 different personnel and GMs around the league in a, in a kind of a blind poll – um, they were rated, ranked the quarterbacks, running backs, ranked each position group. And I saw the running back release, I think, today. I think Mixon was eighth on the list of, of running backs. And that's from not, not from Joe Schmo or Fred Blogger. That's from people around the league voting. I, I, that shows you Joe Mixon's held in pretty high regard around the league. And, and, look, I think the Bengals hold Joe Mixon in high regard. But you're at that leverage point for both of. 
hey, I got another year for you under contract. And I, I do think that if this had not been the offseason that we saw, I think they would have had a done, deal probably done by now with an extension. But just the way things are uncertain, it's just a real tough place. And I get Joe's part. Look, man, I'm going to be a free agent. I don't want to get hurt and not get paid. I want to get paid now. So if I get hurt, I'm financially secure. I get that. So this is one case where, you know, usually we want to point the finger at either the player or the owners or the, or the owner. In this case, they both are, are very right. It just happens to be, unfortunately, the way the running back market is and the way running backs are paid in the league. Yep. Well, Skinny, there's been a lot of news about the, the coronavirus involving sports all across the country. Ivy League programs have been informed that, spall, there has. that fall sports have been canceled. Um, a lot of colleges, including locally, Ohio State has paused all voluntary workouts on campus following the results of recent COVID-19 testing of their student athletes. Has the recent news about COVID outbreaks at colleges and athletic programs and NFL teams that are sending out releases planning for less than 50% capacity at stadiums this year, does that change your thoughts at all on where we're headed in terms of playing sports this fall? Yes and no. To me, and I've said this before, the more I keep hearing of positive tests, the the more I'm encouraged because I'm not hearing any dire news from those positive tests. And I'm not looking to hear for dire news, mind you, but you hear positive tests and guys get shut down. Teams maybe, in this case, Ohio State shutting down for a, a couple of weeks. I think Louisville did the same thing. You can maybe call that overreactionary, but they're shutting down. And then if nothing further comes from it, then to me, that's proven that, okay, we're being very cautious with this. We're catching people either with symptoms or um, who are sick, but nothing really serious is coming from it because of their age and demographic. And, and the fact that most of these people are, as athletes are pretty healthy folks and they're, they're either getting this and getting over it quickly or they have symptoms of it or, or show that they're a carrier of it and then nothing comes of it. To me, that would be more encouraging. Wouldn't it? Shouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, the one thing that's been clear is no one has a grasp on this disease, right? Correct. I mean, it is, it is clearly um, been a problem for everyone to sort of corral and get the right information out to the public, um, whether that be the WHO or uh, government, any government agency, our president, whoever, no one seems to have all the answers when it comes to coronavirus at this point. And so the long-term effects, maybe we don't know. And maybe some of these athletes would be put more at risk long-term than, than what we know if, if they get it. But so far, to your point, we haven't seen anything like that, at least not with elite athletes that are returning to uh, whether it be bubbles or campuses or, or what have you. Again, I go back to there's millions or in some cases billions of dollars on the line. This is America, so we're not usually a country that just kind of passes up on opportunities to make tons of money and keep our economy going. And again, if we're talking a sport like football, guys are putting their livelihoods on the line every single snap. We're talking about paralysis or even just blowing out a knee. Uh, all of that stuff could happen on any single play. You're talking about when you're in your 40s not being able to walk because you've been in so much pain your whole career. Even guys that get through their career have that. Right. I mean, yeah. And then you're going to tell them that they can't play because they might get a virus that, from what we've seen, wouldn't have a great effect on them? Yeah, no, I, I, I just think find it should... a hard, a hard, it's hard for me to believe that you'll be able to tell those grown men they're not going to play. And that's where I go back to. I think leave it up to each individual. If they don't feel comfortable playing, let them opt out. That's fine. I, you're you're going to have to find a way to, to maybe at the professional level pay those guys that opt out. Um, 
and I don't know how that would work. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a team owner. I don't know how that would, that or a member of the players union, but I'm going to guess that if something like this comes along and players opt out, that somehow you're going to get paid something. Um, some deal's going to come along, but in, you know, in college, if a college kid decides, I, I just, I, I'm too, I, I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm afraid I take it back to my grandma and grandpa who, who raised me, whatever, how, whatever the situation is fine. You get a red shirt year. That's okay. We'll red shirt you. It's just like if you hurt your ankle or what you do with freshmen, a lot of times is red shirt them. We'll let them red shirt. I just don't think there's going to be a lot of people that would opt out. I think there will be some, I think you'll agree with the definitely will be some, sure. but I don't think a lot of guys would opt out of it. I think they just say, you know what? I'm a college kid. I'm invincible. Play on. And I understand, sure, there's an argument out there. You got to save those types of people from themselves. And that may be the truth to a certain extent. But again, I don't think we have the information to say that at this point. Um, it just, I, I see people like that freak out when they say, oh, there's only going to be 14,000 fans in, um, in the Ravens stadium this year for football. They're already saying that. Or Kentucky's athletics programs have already started planning for only 50% capacity at football and basketball games this fall and winter. I look at that and I think, yeah, that all makes sense. Like there might not be fans at the games. That, yeah, right. That totally is logical to me. Attendance money, gate money is big. But it's not nearly as big as the TV money that the conferences are getting. Well, I, I will say for some, and I think UC would fall into this, um, I think they're, for some conferences, the, the ticket revenue is probably a big deal because they're not getting as much from, from TV. The Power Fives, I think they could survive a year with minimal fans because of the TV money. Sure. I think anything below the Power Fives, I think you probably got to have fans. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a fair point, but I'm talking about the the people that drive the the decisions, right? And that's the people that matter in the sport, the power fives. I mean, the Clemsons, the Alabamas, the OSUs, the LSUs, all that. Those are the people that are going to make the decisions for everybody else. And maybe everybody else can't play if they don't have fans. I don't know. But those are the ones we're talking about here in all reality because those are the ones that have a chance to win a a title and the ones that everyone's going to watch on Saturdays. So to me, like, there's a big gap between saying – we can't have fans or we can only have like half capacity in our stadium and we're not going to play at all because there is still a ton of TV money on the table that that could probably keep this thing afloat for a lot of these big athletic departments as long as something is played and there's a product to put on TV. And so that's why I just keep coming back to whether it's the right decision, the wrong decision, uh, take all the morals and, and the logic out of it and just think about what we know in our country and money I find it hard to believe that there will not be sports this fall simply for that reason alone. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the only thing that, that, that could be troubling is if they, if they delay it and the delay doesn't do anything. If the delay is only to, to hope that something different comes about with coronavirus, I just think that's wishful thinking. I, I think. Yeah, I don't know what's going to change. Yeah, I think to me it's one of two things. You either you – know, it's one of three things. You either – and I say this with high school sports as well. I was talking to some people because obviously we're getting really close to high schools having to make a decision. Um, high school athletic associations have to make a decision and high schools themselves whether they're going to have fall sports and or football, especially in, in that fall sports mix. It really is one of three things. Either you plow through and play and, and know there's risks involved, which there are anyway, you make the decision now to switch the spring sports, uh, switch football to the spring, or you just simply cancel the season. And you have to make that decision sooner or rather. I don't think delaying the start is going to do anything. I think you delay it, it, it doesn't do anything other than just put us a month further behind. And I, I just don't think that's going to work. I, I don't see that in any way, shape, or form. So, yeah, that's where it's where back to your original question. That's why I, I get more encouraged when I hear people testing positive and then nothing 
dire happens. And yeah, I know that somebody's, if something had dire happened, somebody's going to point their finger at me and go, see, see, somebody did die from this. Okay, well, I, players have died during workouts too before and, and because of pre-existing conditions. It sucks. It's terrible. It's awful. No one wants that. But again, there are risks in a lot of things you do in life, and this would be one of them for me. And I know there was some freak out yesterday, Rick, with the Ivy League decision, but I think the key takeaway for that is this really wasn't an athletic decision as much as it was a lot of the Ivy League schools because of of, of protocols that they had in place as far as uh, schools, not uh, you know, staff members and, and people not being able to travel, some going to just online courses for the fall, that it just it wasn't feasible for them to play fall sports based on school policies, not based on the fear of coronavirus and football. So I think everybody saw that yesterday and went, well, say the Ivy League did it. Now, look, the other conferences may still do it, but I don't think it has anything to do with what the Ivy League did yesterday. Right, and I know people go back to March and say, well, remember when they were the first ones to cancel their, their conference tournament and then everyone had to follow suit? Like, they're just I think smarter. That was, they're that ahead was of just coincidence. Yeah, that was just yeah. coincidence. And in this case, I would say, well, they may be smarter and they may be ahead of things, and, and that very well could be the case. But in this case, it's also their sports aren't nearly as valuable to them as – like right. LSU, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, the Ivy Leagues aren't there because of their athletics programs. They're there because they're the most prestigious universities in the world. Um, they're going to have to make this decision in a different way than SEC schools are. Uh, so that that just, I don't know if it's logical necessarily to draw too many conclusions from what the Ivy League is doing. We saw Stanford had to drop 11 sports due to they're saying financial reasons but I thought Brian Snow um, who who works with me at 24-7 brought up a really good point on Twitter saying there's a gap between has to drop sports and is dropping sports because they want to restructure things long term and this is a good excuse yes no no one's gonna get mad at you for cutting sports under the the veil of coronavirus but you can't do that normally because of title nine and all these other things that like it would just look bad from a PR perspective. Rick, when, when you see drop, drop men's soccer, what did I say? That it was, it was just convenient. A, yeah, correct. And that's, and that's the yeah. same for – I mean, no offense, and I, I'm sorry for those athletes in those sports, but look, it's also a business for, for colleges, right or wrong. I mean, they have to pay – somebody's got to foot the bill, and if your sport isn't bringing in the revenue to, to fill the gap, I'm sorry, then you just – you know, you can play club sports. Nobody's telling you you can't go row – you just aren't going to row under a, under a scholarship or under that school's name. Well, you can row, make, make it a club sport. You want to still compete? We're, we're Stanford club rowing. We're Stanford club lacrosse. We're Stanford club men's volleyball. Um, if you don't like it, then transfer to a school that has it, I guess, right? I mean, it's just – no, I, and I think Brian's absolutely right. I've thought that all along. I'm, I'm actually surprised, and, and we may still see schools, more schools do this, especially now that Stanford, which has, you know, a, a, Stanford's got a lot of money. So if Stanford's doing it, it shows you that, look, other schools are going to follow suit. I think you're going to see multiple schools drop multiple sports like this. And, look, I'm the parent of a, of a child that, that got an athletic scholarship in a non-revenue sport and feel, you know, I'm glad she, she was able to, to pay for part of her college uh, with that. But I get it, man. If she, you know, if she played a non-revenue sport. She played golf. Didn't bring in any money. Just, you know, it is what it is. I also have to wonder if some of these athletic departments are looking towards the future, seeing things like the name, image, and likeness rule taking into effect and are having to prepare to be run more like a business because maybe they are going to be sharing some profits going forward with some of the athletes. And um, I, I just think the financial landscape is going to change a little bit. Maybe not a ton, but somewhat oh, I in think the a coming lot. years. I think it will change a lot. Yeah. And coronavirus may have more to do with that than anything. Um, but even from a perspective of just where college athletics was already trending before this pandemic happened, 
um, I think I think there was the, some of this was already in the works probably, and this made it really convenient for athletic departments to make drastic no drastic decisions. Um, and I think that's what you're seeing here with Stanford. You saw it with UC in the soccer program, and it won't be the last, especially locally. We'll see more local colleges drop some of their athletic uh, teams and. A lot of that will be because it was probably already in the works to a certain extent. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And yeah, yeah, probably coronavirus did, you know, put put more of a strain on athletic budgets, especially when you started to to budget for fewer and fewer fans in your major revenue sports. But no, I think it's just more convenient than it is anything else. And like I said, now that schools have seen somebody as major as Stanford drop multiple sports, because there's been I, AP has a huge list. I, I went through it last week and, and just kept going, wow, that school's dropped this and this and this. I have a friend of mine that was an athletic director at a college, small college in Ohio. They dropped all their sports. Um, and I think you'll see a lot of those smaller schools because they're not paying scholarship money, but they're also not getting any, you know, a whole lot of revenue either. So, um, and, and now that a, a major school like Stanford's done it, I think you'll see multiple schools drop multiple sports. All right, switching gears one more time before we wrap it up with some Ask Any Anything. Wednesday marked the 10-year anniversary of the decision. LeBron James' announcement that he was taking his talents to South Beach where he teamed up with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. LeBron stayed in Miami for four years before returning to Cleveland in 2014. Skinny, I ask you, do you think LeBron and the Big Three era in Miami lived up to expectations looking back on it 10 years later? Uh, yeah, um, I, I guess you, you thought they were going to win a title every year, but that's not feasible. But I, yeah, I would say yes. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Did Chris Bosh start getting sick at the end of that run, or was it after LeBron left? Uh, I believe it was during it, towards the end. Okay. Yeah, and that probably real quick. exacerbated it a little bit too. No, I would, yeah, I would say yes to answer your question, yes. Oh, I take that back. He uh, he initially missed games in the 14-15 season, so that would have been right after LeBron went. Okay, there. okay, all right. But I still to, to answer that question. Yeah, I, I would call, I would deem it a success. Yes. How about you? Yeah, I think there's no doubt it is. It, it, look, the four year run together, and you make the NBA Finals every single year. I get it. You know, there's that that stupid. Uh, I guess what, what would you call it? A pep rally that that LA or I yes. mean uh, that the, Miami, Miami held, where yeah. they, not two, not three, not three, not, not right, 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 right. Yeah, that was terrible. It was terrible from an optics perspective. It was stupid. It, it was gonna haunt him and that that team and that group forever. But you go four times to the NBA Finals. That's a success. You win two of them. That's a success. The first year. Granted, they lost to a team in Dallas that they were better than. They should have beat that Dallas Mavericks team. But the first year you're together, the, the, when people have these expectations, just like when um, you know Boston was four big, their big three, or LeBron came to the Lakers right, this right. year with Anthony Davis, when people immediately say the expectation is win, win it all or bust, that's always ridiculous to me because there is – you just have to figure things out. There is a gelling, uh, a chemistry uh, process that has to take place for any team, no matter what. And uh, I think that's what you saw that first year. Now, granted, the talent got them all the way to the finals anyways, and they had a chance to win the thing. They end up losing to a team that they were probably better than. Then they win two NBA titles in a row. And the final year, I, mean, I think it was pretty clear that they were worn down. Um, the, the fact that Dwayne Wade's knees had just been completely shot by that point. He was a different player that wasn't shooting through gaps as quickly anymore. And 
him and LeBron were never really complementary pieces. They were so talented that they worked together, but they're both slashers, drivers, creators that were both trying to get in the lane at the same time. And all of a sudden when Dwayne Wade wasn't able to quite do those things as explosively and as quick as he once did, it became a little bit easier uh, to, to defend that team. And really the, that, that team became more LeBron and some shooters, those final, really the yeah, final give me a favor. Give me a favor. Na- name, name two other players on those teams. Yeah, I mean, Mike Miller, um, the Birdman, Chris Anderson. It, it's role players like that. Ray Allen, when they brought him back, was a big signing. Shane Battier was a huge signing because LeBron didn't want to defend in the post. Um, I'll, I'll go back to, to kind of my era of the NBA, the, the, that 1980s era. When I, when I look back at those Lakers teams, right, that had Magic, had Kareem, and granted it was an older Kareem, had James Worthy. I mean, you had arguably in, in Magic and Kareem, arguably, again, we can always argue eras, two of the 20 greatest players in NBA history. And James Worthy was, I believe, on, the, on, the, on that anniversary team, the 50 greatest players. So you had three, and they didn't win a title every year. It's right. damn hard. It's hard to do. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing. We, we look at that as like the original big three, and it was played up because of the decision and the announcements. And you could talk however you want about the optics of all of that and the way it played out. But at the end of the day, when you look back at those teams – those teams really weren't that loaded by today's no, standards when we look no. at how teams have kind of figured this thing out, play a little bit smaller maybe, get more talent on the floor, find more complementary pieces with shooters to put around your stars, things like that. The game's played a little bit more differently now, and I think they've figured contracts out better to where you can put a little more talent around these uh, big three lineups that you have, whereas those, those Heat teams, they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel to put guys around. Look yeah, and I'll be honest with you, Bosch. I, I think Chris Bosh is a nice player. I never found him to be elite. No, but I, think I, thought, he's a, I thought he was really good when he was with the Raptors I, by himself for a couple years there. Yeah, no, no, I, again, I, and, and, but when you're talking supreme, I'm, I mean, Dwayne Wade and LeBron James at their peak were yeah, elite Hall of Famer, NBA players. Yeah, yeah I don't uh, think Chris, Chris Bosh is a Chris, Hall of Famer. He just was. So when you talk big three, I might even tell you the big two and a half. Yeah, and again, I think Chris Bosh was great by himself, and he kind of accepted a lesser role to fit mm-hmm. in with those guys. And I think you always Agreed. see that. Like Kevin Love did the same thing, right? When he the, the guy who's kind of the least alpha of the group seems to take a step back in terms of his role, uh, and you, you need that. You need someone to be willing to do that. I think Chris Bosh did that very yeah. well, especially yeah, when he, that. especially when he started playing kind of center for them. He went from being more of a, a face up forward to being like, all right, now I'm the big man, and that that all of a sudden really sort of propelled that team when, when they figured out to play a little bit smaller with um, him in there and Shane Battier could guard forwards and LeBron could kind of do his thing as a point forward. Um, that lineup worked really, really well for that team. Yeah, no, I, I, and back to the original question, yeah, I, I would deem it a success, yes. I, I would too. I, I think uh, people have re- ridiculous expectations when they see superstars team up. Uh, but anytime you get to the finals every single year you're together, uh, that's a that's a pretty good run. But I will say, like uh, the Warriors reign has de- definitely passed up the the Heat's reign. Like this Warriors super team was much better than the the Heat. But but it also showed you how tenuous that is. We're really an injury plus kind of derailed things for a season. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. It's so fragile. Winning is so fragile, and uh, especially when you're dealing with big egos and big contracts and uh, with elite athletes who can get injured. So, 
All right, Skinny, time for our favorite segment of the podcast where people send us links, they send us questions, whatever, uh, mostly on Twitter, but also sometimes email and other means. And they just want your opinion. And so I'm I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to oblige, Rick. Yes, we are. And uh, we will start off with best fast food coffee. You are a coffee guy. What do you like? Um, I'll go McDonald's. I think McDonald's coffee is superb. Um, I just hate waiting in line just for a cup of coffee. I, I, I don't go there all the time, but, um, if I see the line is short, if I'm driving by, I mean, I'm a big Dunkin' Donuts guy. I don't know if you want to consider them fast food cause they're really kind of a coffee breakfast place, but McDonald's coffee, man, really good. White Castle coffee is really good. Um, the your, daily, is the one, your daily, your daily like Dunkin' Donuts or Speedway though, right? I don't, I'm not a big Speedway coffee guy, though. Okay. I'm just, okay. yeah, they're, they're, I, I will get it on occasion. So it's mostly Dunkin' with you? Yeah, oh yeah, it's almost all, especially now when they built a Dunkin' on, on uh, Route 18 about a, what, a year and a half, two years ago, and it's on my way to the highway. It's an easy stop for me. But yeah, McDonald's, for just a fast food restaurant, if you want to classify them, McDonald's coffee's really good. And I hate coffee. So <laughs> that's your simple answer. Yeah. I, I don't like hot liquids, not a hot liquids guy. I'll never be a coffee guy. I don't like soups. I don't like hot chocolate. Wait a uh, minute. Yeah. Is, is there a reason? No, no logical I just, reason. I guess I should ask. No, it's just like how some people don't like uh, certain foods because like texture, you know, I just, I don't like hot liquids. If, like if there's going to be a soup, it better be like a really good chowder, like a new England clam chowder. That's homemade. Dude, that, there is, there is nothing better in the winter time than a great bowl of soup. Uh, nothing better. I don't like it. Uh, I mean, again, if wow. it's a really good homemade stew or chowder or something, I will eat it because sometimes some of those are just great. But overall, like the idea of having a hot liquid is just that's a, that's just illogically. That's almost that's almost more. I'm going to tell you that's almost moronic. Uh, fair enough. Uh, the ideal air conditioning temperature setting to get through the heat right now, Skinny. Where do you leave it at? Six sixty eight. I'm just and I. It's a constant fight in this house. Um, I got, I got one degree of, higher. I, 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 yeah, I know because it's everybody's favorite numbers. Measure. Yeah, because everybody's favorite numbers. We know. Um, I, I cannot sleep w- at anything above seventy to seventy-two. I just I sweat too much at night. It's just uncomfortable. You toss and turn. I want to at night have to take the blanket and pull it over my head to keep from freezing. I want that kind of temperature. Um, yeah. I, I just can't. I ha- I hate it. And we have a constant argument in this household. Uh, with 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 the temperature set, I know my my oldest daughter who's getting married in October. She and her fiance bought a house back in uh, about a year ago, and I remember the first time I went over to her house, I'm like, "Man, it's cold in here." She goes, "Yep." She goes, "Once I moved out, I got to set the temperature what I wanted." I said, "Okay, you probably won't like the bill, but okay, I I, I like it. I mean, it felt comfortable to me." So. Yeah, I, it's got to be. I'm, go, I'm going 68, and I know that's probably people are going to yell at me that I'm an energy waster. Hey, look, it's my bill. I'll pay the bill if I have to pay it. But um, unfortunately, I don't get my way very often with the temperature setting in the house. No, I'm with you. It's I, 95 I mean, outside. 72 should feel good. Well, it doesn't. Guess what? It does. 68 feels better. Yeah. I need it. I want it really cold. I want it for when I come in from the outside. Yes, it hits uh, you like a ton of bricks. Yeah, I want to just immediately be refreshed. And then, like you said, when I go to bed, I want to need a cover. Yes, I don't fall asleep without something over top of me anyway. So it's like thank, plus thank goodness for that. Yeah, there's an 80 pound dog too. Like it's it's too warm. Like it, I need I need it to be uh, under 70 for sure. I'm with you on that. And, and uh, dude, I got the I got a ceiling fan in, in the in the bedroom too, and I'm a big ceiling fan guy. And of course, that becomes an argument of what setting that goes on. I, if I had it to my way of thinking, I'd put that thing on turbocharged at night. But um, unfortunately, it makes a little bit too much racket. 
So right now it's on a right now it's on number two setting, and at night it goes on number one setting. And sometimes I sneak away at night and put it on the number two setting because it yeah. just I cannot I can't stand being hot sleeping, man. I can't stand it. I get it, but yeah, sometimes the fan noise can be too much. I, I'm iffy on the fans. People that are that are gung ho about having to have a fan, I question that sometimes too. I don't I don't always like that. Uh, fried egg on a cheeseburger or no? No, absolutely no. I know that's kind of the thing nowadays. I I don't I, I like a fried egg. Um, my youngest daughter actually makes really good fried eggs, better than I make them, and uh, I really do. I, I, I like them, but not on a burger. Nope, no, sir. I just, just give me a burger with uh, – usually for me, it's, it's, it's uh, uh, pickles, mustard, and onion. That's all I need on a burger. I don't even like cheese on a burger, to be honest with you. I'll yeah, eat that, it, but I don't even like it. That's banana land. My go-to burger is mushroom and Swiss always. Um, yeah, I don't want mushrooms on my burger either. Um, mushrooms. And I, and I love mushrooms. mushrooms no, I love mushrooms. Um, I, I, I'm a huge mushroom guy, but not on my burger. I don't want, uh, when did, and by the way, when did the fried egg become kind of a thing on the burger? I'm not sure. You know, uh, steak and shake has always been, they've had like that Royale burger. That's always been popular. I know with, a, with an egg, I think red Robin's always done that. Um, I'm not sure when it became a normal thing though. It does seem like everyone has that on their menu now. Yeah, I, I'm fine with it. Uh, it's not really what I get usually but i'm i'll eat it if it's there i do like fried eggs on sandwiches a lot i think that is a nice for instance we were down at the lake uh this past week which is just a gluttonous trip and for breakfast (laughs) uh one morning i had a bagel sandwich that was ham cheese cream cheese and fried egg Okay, I'm, I'm down with that. that, that, was, that, that uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a gluttonous breakfast sandwich for sure. There's no especially yeah. the jalapeno added touch cream the, cheese. Oh, I was saying especially this cream cheese. That's the gluttonous touch that was added to it. Yeah, but it does sound damn. It does sound damn good. I'll give you that. It was. Uh, all right. Favorite live sporting event memory. Oh, uh, live. Um, I'll, I'll go. Um, as a student, as my senior year at Kentucky, they had the the final four was at Rupp Arena the year that Villanova beat Georgetown. That that to me was awesome. Being in that arena that that for that whole weekend, but especially that night of one of the great upsets in sports history. Um, that, that probably will rank up there for me all time. I mean, I still, when it comes on in replays, I watch it and still, still to this day have no way knowing how Villanova won that damn game. Um, and yet somehow did. So yeah, that, that's an easy one for me. That was that game, uh, getting a chance. Let me tell you how stupid I was. My wife and I were dating at the time and they had a, a student lottery to purchase tickets for that, that final four, because it was at Rupp and it wasn't a lot of tickets that were being sold. Right. Well, we both got a number. Her number was the second one called. And you could buy two tickets with each lottery selection, right? right? So we go purchase our two tickets and leave. Guess what? I didn't stick around to find out whether my number was picked, which then I could have sold the two damn tickets. <laughs> so you had extra tickets and you didn't know? Well, I don't, I don't know if right. I won the lottery. I mean, but, but, but I still don't know. Yeah, I, I, we, I was so excited that you know, we had one of our two numbers picked that I went down, paid, left, and then all of a sudden, like two days later, went, you know what? We didn't stick around to see if my number was called because then I would have taken those and sold those for sure. Yeah, probably not the smartest thing you've ever done. No, absolutely not. But yeah, no, to me, to answer that question, that, that, that's easily for me, that, that event. How about for you? Man, I think it has to be... Do you have to be in person at the event? Is that what oh, we're I, saying I think, here? I think, I think I, well, I, I, that's the criteria I was using. Yes. Okay. Man, that changes. Because I was going to say, I think the most fun sports memory I honestly have as a fan was the Drew McDonald buzzer beater over Oakland in the semifinals of the Horizon League tournament. Yeah, and you watched that in a bar, correct? Yeah, that was at Dickman's. Yeah. Um, I watched that, which 
I get it, maybe being being there is a, a different. Maybe that's what they're asking for. Yeah, yeah but that's what that, that's, that's the way I took far it. Far the most. Fu- th- that's the problem with covering so many sports. I mean, you right, can still right. you can still enjoy the moments and have fun, whatever. But like the, the moments where you're really into it and have just lost your mind, those are the ones that really stand out. And for well, me, if you that think was about NKU, me- knowing that they were going to go to the uh, the Horizon League finals, that was crazy. Yeah, no, I I remember that that night. Um. Yeah, and again, it's funny because I go back to mine. I didn't have a rooting interest in either Georgetown or Nova. Like a lot of people, I liked the underdog, and I got—I was getting tired of Georgetown. I guess at that time, I was getting Georgetown fatigue. Although when you look back, those teams were so damn good. Um, they, they just had—I I still don't know how that team lost. They had the perfect point guard. They had David Wingate and Reggie Williams, who were two great shooters, and of course, they had Patrick Ewing. And I still don't know how that team lost. But yeah, I mean, I had no rooting interest, you know, from a sheer stand, fan standpoint, other than I was rooting for the other dog. Um, but yeah, I I, I think from let's so do you have you don't have one that you were in person at? Well, I mean, uh, calling last year's Horizon League uh, championship game was pretty yeah. fun. Knowing that they yeah. now granted it kind of it got the sweetness wore off pretty quickly when we found out there wasn't going to be an NCAA tournament. Well, but the idea point. that hey, like going to an NCAA tournament, going to call a game there, that was a pretty cool event where I you know obviously had some rooting interest uh, for personal reasons. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, there's. I don't know that I've ever been to like a huge Reds or Bengals win during my lifetime. Like, obviously, I've seen a lot of big games on TV. Yeah, I, I, I was at I was at the Freezer Bowl, um, and while that was exciting, um, it was so damn cold that you were. I mean, it was exciting. Don't get me wrong, but it was just so freaking cold that um, it it was it was it was hard to enjoy, even though you were enjoying the moment. If you know what I mean. Yeah, I've I've certainly been there with football. It can it can get difficult. And I was at, and, I, and I'll be honest, I I I was at Pete's uh, forty one ninety two. I had a ticket for that game as well. Um, but yeah, that Georgetown Nova game, just the sheer drama of it, still still gets me. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, the, the, to answer that question, yeah, I mean, I've been to a lot of really cool events. I mean, saw the all time hits leader get his hit. I saw the Bengals go to their first Super Bowl, and and that Georgetown championships arguably. You know, outside of maybe the buzzer beater from a couple of years ago, where Nova beat uh, beat Carolina, is arguably one of the best championship games in, in NCAA tournament history. Yeah, that was that Nova North Carolina game. Still, just goosebumps when I think about that ending in a national title game like that. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, all right, final question on here. What do you think about the changes to ESPN Radio, particularly Mike Golick getting fired? Yeah, I don't think it was fired. Yeah, per technically, the show got canceled, and uh, yeah, he's still and, under contract for a little bit longer, I guess. I I think it shows that they're trying to add diversity to the lineup, right or wrong, and that's that's I think all that decision was made on was based on on that, and that's fine. Um, you know, they they they've cut what an hour off Dan Lebetard's show, but some of that's podcast related. I guess his podcast is going really well, and they want to take a break. I think they want to give Mike Greenberg a, a spot. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Mike Golick Jr. now is getting like the afternoon drive show. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I don't need, who's he doing it with? Um, I, I can't remember the guy's name. It's not uh, Jason, Fitz, Jason Fitz. No, 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 no. He's okay. still on yeah, okay. the uh, night show. Yeah. No, I, 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 I think that's all that was. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm a little surprised that after all the buildup of, of this whole Golick and Wingo thing that they blew it up that quickly. But I think in today's environment, ESPN wanted to show it a little more diversity and have a diverse morning show. I get it. Well, I think 
it's very clear that it hasn't worked out since the separation of Mike and Mike. Like there's some people that are okay with the show, but I don't think anyone likes it as well as they did when it was Mike and Mike. And See, I, wasn't I didn't a, like, I, I wasn't a Mike and Mike guy at all. N- neither, neither was I. I was just going to say, I didn't like Mike and Mike, but the problem is this new show didn't bring any new fans. It's not like I like this version of it either. I, I liked his son. Actually. I like, I liked, I like going junior as much as I liked any of them. Yeah, and I think that I I think he's got a lot of talent, and that's why he's uh, he's getting a, a bigger opportunity here. But I just Mike Golick. What's your overall thoughts on Mike Golick as a as a talent radio host? I think he's just I, I I think he's he just comes off as kind of a lunkhead. <laughs> that's probably not a fair assessment because I think he's pretty intelligent, but he just, he just comes off as a lunkhead. Um, and I've told you before, Mike Greenberg just has that punchable face and kind of a punchable voice as well. I don't know why that, that is. It just, that's the first thing when I see his face is I want to punch it. So, um, I know radio is not that medium, but I know what he looks like. So every time I hear his voice, I want to punch that voice. Gold just come off as kind of a lunkhead. Um, yeah, kind I of think I, his- play, I kind of, I played the game. He didn't give you the, I played the game. So I know everything, but it was still kind of, I played the game mentality. It was like, I, I played the game and that's really my only credibility for being here. Like, yeah, it's yeah. not that he was terrible on radio. He was not, but, and he was not unlikable as a personality, I don't think. I, th- I, think, he, I think that I, was the, his, his biggest talent is that he's a likable guy. He yeah. sounded like the, the big guy who would be fun to drink with at a bar that would just talk sports with you. He didn't really tell you anything. Anything new, right. Interesting. He didn't have a lot of great takes. Um, he didn't really advance the conversation, in my opinion, but he would just sit there and talk sports every morning and be fairly likable, eat a donut while he was doing it. Um, it, it. He's okay. Like, I mean, he was just always, to me, he was okay. I liked him a whole lot better than Mike Greenberg. I hated the Mike and Mike show overall. I thought it was hokey and corny. Um, and then the whole thing with Wingo, I just, it didn't have any direction for me at all. I, I really didn't enjoy that one at all. And Greenberg's show on TV is absolutely terrible. So, uh I think that they've really screwed up. The, and I know they weren't only on speaking terms by the time they right, sort of separated. Right. Um, and I and know that happens. to do a show together. Yeah, it gets tough to do a show with a partner for that long. Uh, by the way, Mike Golick Jr., um, he's doing that afternoon show with uh, a women's basketball player, Chiny Ogu Mike. Oh, yeah, the one from Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure if I butchered her name there. You, sorry, you, 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 you butchered it pretty good, but I know who you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're on from four to seven. Kellerman is on from uh, two to four. And Mike Greenberg. He's unlistenable too. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a Kellerman fan. Greenberg is on from noon to two. I guess the biggest thing I'm looking at this. There's no Stephen A. Yeah, and outside of uh, the Levitard show with, with Stu Gotts from 10 a.m. to noon, there's nothing on here that I'm interested in listening to. I mean, me me neither. It's terrible. funny you said. I mean, I, I'm the same way with you. I, I agree. I, I, you know. and, obviously in this mar- and obviously in this marketplace, you're not going to get the afternoon show anyway, so. Right. The 6 to 10 a.m. is uh, Keyshawn Johnson, Jay Williams, and Zubin Mahaney. Yeah, Zubin Mahaney will probably be the host of that, and they will be the kind of the, the cohorts. I, I, like, I like Jay Williams. I, I, he, he's okay. I, Keyshawn doesn't really do much for me. Um, I, I, you know, the, the sad part is I, don't probably, I probably won't listen to that, and I, I can't listen to what a, Clay Travis's show, so I don't know what I would do in the mornings if I had to to listen. I, good, good part, I guess, for me is I'm rarely in the car in the mornings anyway. Usually if I'm in the car during football season, I'm heading down to Paul Brown Stadium at around, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. So I've already missed the morning shows anyway. It's just so brutal around here that there's no morning sports talk show for local sports talk. Like whenever something happens locally, the first thing I want to do is flip on yep. local sports talk the next morning and, and hear what the take is. And 
we've got nothing. I mean, occasionally you get the uh, ESPN 360 at noon, and that's the only thing we got. It's it's a, a hour at noon or a half hour at, at noon. It's an hour. It's an hour. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I, to me that's just brutal. Um, I, I obviously the options we have in town are great. I think Lance and Moe do a phenomenal job, but I. I wish we had more, and specifically in the, the morning. And looking at this lineup here makes me feel that way even more so. Honestly, yeah. I think after um, Levitard's show, Freddie and Fitzsimmons are probably my favorite favorite show on here. Yeah, I, I'm a big Levitard. I, I, I almost have to do an appointment listening with him. I'm just – and good part is when I'm at home, I can watch it on TV. It, it, it kind of disappoints me that an hour of it's going away. But in this market, we lost an hour anyway because we had the, the midday show, which was good. I'd rather have the midday local show than, than honestly, as much as I like Levitard, I have an extra hour. So, um, yeah, I just I, – I find it odd that they, they, they were so, so static for so long that they just keep blowing stuff up. That sounds like to me they, they don't know what they're doing as an organization. Yeah, I mean, I don't see any direction, and I don't see them really developing new talents very well. I mean, don't get me yeah, wrong. No, there's, right. been, there's been some names, and there always will be names that come out of ESPN, um, especially on, like, the football side. Like, I think Mina Kimes is a great success story. I think, of, she's, I think she's fabulous. Yeah, a woman who has broken out and just absolutely dominated the uh, analyst game recently. So I, I don't want to act like ESPN doesn't develop any talent at all, but on the radio side of things, they're really struggling to find people that – that can put together a captivating show and last. Agreed. Agreed. So All right. there you well, go. That's it. All right. Good stuff, Rick. Uh, you know, we, we keep moving further down the road and, and a lot of big decisions got to come about and we'll be around to talk about them and hopefully the decisions we're going to like uh, as we approach the start of baseball. The NBA bubble teams are arriving. The NHL set a start date for July 1st. We still have all systems go, or rather, uh, for uh, August 1st. All systems seem to be go for uh, for uh, the start of training camps, at least for now. But still a lot of important sports decisions to come, and we'll be around to talk about it. Rick, thanks so much. Sounds good. All right, for Rick Broy, I'm Richard Skinner. This has been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pope re-edition. 